This is Eric with the Thought Session, and joining me for this episode is Dr. Xavier Marquez McCaskey. He's an adult and child psychologist, and his practice is based in Columbus, Georgia, and offers counseling services centered largely around addiction and substance abuse. Dr. McCaskey has also served his country, having completed tours in both the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army. His Willie Lee Solomon Foundation, named after his late father, was established to combat human trafficking, slavery, and exploited and missing minorities. Dr. McCaskey recently answered further calls of activism by obtaining a law degree to help address the ills of our nation's justice system. He currently serves as Planning Advisory Committee Commissioner for the City of Columbus, Georgia, and is a licensed member of the American Planning Association. Dr. McCaskey, Welcome to Thought Session. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing fine, my brother. How are you doing, sir? Hey, man, I'm doing very well considering the circumstances, man. I'm, I'm blessed to be here. And that phrase actually has a, a more powerful meaning right now. Um, sure it does. I, 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 I hope everything is, is, is all well and good on your side of the, the map as well. And let me just say, I was really thrilled and honored to review the credentials that you bring to this conversation the years of experience you have in, in not only the public sector, but also in the, the health sector with your counseling practice. I really want more of our youth to know that accomplishments like this are possible. So I just want to thank you, man, just for spending some time to come talk to us on Thought Session, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you for the compliments, my brother. Duly earned, man. So we connected out on social media, and I was so glad to be acquainted with the things that you're doing and, you know, the conversations that are going on, obviously, with uh, the current climate, the George Floyd situation, man. And I, I was just curious, before we get into some of the other uh, parts of the conversation, what's your take on what's going on? The situation with George Floyd, it just, it's a different man from a different time. But it's the same thing that's been going on to African Americans since we came here in the 1600s. But this time it's, we're frustrated, we're tired, and we're going to speak up. That man didn't have to die. Seeing the police officers hold him down and the, uh, the other three cops look around showed me that we still have fear of the police is what we've taught. Because I can guarantee you this, if I were there, and I'm 6'5", 350 pounds, I would have bulled all my way through him and helped that brother. Because I'm not concerned with going to jail. I'm not concerned with getting hurt because it's nothing they can do to me. And I want to stress this to Afro-American people. When you get your own education, you start your own business, and you build it up, there's nothing they can do to you. They can't tear me down. I don't get any grants from the government, all self-made with 25 years of having a good reputation. And I stand up for my people and I will. And I went to law school because I felt I wasn't doing enough. It's interesting because you've been in various sides of this and, and you've seen the people that are impacted, not only by this whole injustice, but you know your work with the prison system. What kind of insight that you get just from that scenario and how do we get from the whole situation we have with the the, the imbalance with respect to the number of African Americans in prison to the danger that they experience being free out on the street how do you even start to make it stop good question so let me elaborate on this for a minute there are certain things we need to do in the Afro-American home there are certain things that need to be taught. There has been a division between men and women since they came up with this system, this child support system back in the 60s. 
which took the father out of the house. They told women, we'll give you a check. We'll give you 33% of his check and a place to stay. But he can't live here, and you can't make more than $12,000 to $20,000 a year. And we're going to give you somewhere to stay till these kids are 18. Then when you're old, we're just going to move you back to the old folks section, let you get some um, disability because you haven't worked and you can still stay here. Without a strong father in the household, the kids fail. I don't care if he was a drunk, if he was a bad man, kids respect their father when he's an authoritative figure. And like I told you, my father was 6'8", 320 military, dude. We called the beast. And brother, let me tell you, my daddy didn't chew his cabbage twice. He said, hey, let me tell you something. Nothing below a C-plus come in my house and an 18, you getting out my house. I think he only said that twice his whole life when we got the picture. He never whooped me a day in my life. It was my mother who did the whooping, who we were scared of. My dad never touched us. My grandmother whooped us. My aunts whooped us. But that was a family upbringing. See, now we have social media. We disrespect each other's, you know, he my baby daddy, she my baby mama. We don't have a culture of love anymore. And they destroyed the love between the Afro-American man and woman. You shouldn't be with somebody because you need them. You shouldn't be with nobody because of what they gain. I've always thought if you have kids with somebody, you settle your differences, you raise your children and stay as one. I've been with my wife 23 years and I told her, you know, I have kids from free relationship and she had three kids from free relationship. But all my grandkids will only see me and you. It's never going to be another man with you. There's never going to be another woman with me. This is a commitment. This is something I'm taking to death with. That they'll only see us. What that does is create an image to kids that say, hey, you know what? I want to be like my grandpa and my granddad, because that's how my grandparents were. Irregardless of whatever else happened, when I went to church on Sunday, it was Reverend Peter Paul Solomon, First Lady Solomon, and Reverend Abba McCaskey and First Lady McCaskey. See, I got church on both sides. That's all it was, and that's all I saw. What do you think it takes to get back to that type of system? We have to teach the kids now the importance of a relationship. We have to teach the kids now to build together, build a business, start something. Forget all the Facebook and friends. That's for high school. When you grow up and you choose your mate, it's a lifelong commitment and journey. Because what happened is people want to throw in the towel. Now, you get rich, you got some money I can throw in the towel. I can get half of what you got and I can go on and then you break the bond. What is the concept of slave mentality? Do you think this is a real thing? It, very real. See, the slave was beat. The slave was oppressed. The slave was mentally beat down. The slave was made to be ashamed to be a man. You know how I had to be to know when this man came out of your house and took your wife around the corner, what he was doing to her and there's nothing you can do? What about the buck breaking system where they took slaves and bent them over and anal sex them in front of the children? What about whipping your kids? What about you dark skin and your white dark skin and this man brings this light skinned baby with green eyes and tell you this is your child and you got to raise it? Slaves were the first step father. I'm just telling you. Do you think it's something we can overcome? Everything can be overcome. We have to do due diligence and work hard at it. We have to forget what we've been taught and retrain ourselves to say, hey, I'm going to invest my money in black businesses. I'm going to keep everything black from my doctor to my dentist to my chiropractor. I'm going to keep all the money in my community. I'm going to help people in my community. Because when I graduated, and had a PhD in 2008, there was no market for an Afro-American man to start a practice. It was either work for somebody else or get the, the scraps left over. I went out on my own 
start of my practice, and I used to go through the neighborhoods, knock on people's door, present them with a face card and say, hey, I'm Dr. Xavier McCaskey. This is what I do. These are the insurances I take. Have a nice day. And that proved to be beneficial because I work with a lot of drug addicts. I'm a sex offender therapist. Um, I do victim and predator. I had to do so much more than everybody else to say, hey, will I be accepted? I want to be accepted. So do you find that you had a challenge being accepted by your peers in the profession or by the people in the community that ultimately would end up using your services? As an Afro-American man, it's a double-edged sword because in the Afro-American community, people who are educated, we're, we're not like. We're called sellouts. Is you think you're better than everybody else? And I did everything I could to help my people. Yeah, it's a great job. It's a lot of accolades. But when you look at the mental health, I was, um, first before I started my practice, I was working for other companies, and I used to go to drug court. And I used to see Afro-American women and kids on drugs. And they weren't getting no help. They was going to jail, placed in jail or prison, and not being prejudiced. I'm just going to say what it is. Johnny Doe comes, and he has a good upbringing. He comes from a good background. He gets a slap on the wrist and gets to go to a, a drug treatment facility. So I said, if I can do this and I can help my people, now they have somewhere to go. But here's the challenge. Once you start it and you say, hey, I'm going to help you stay out of jail. It's called a pretrial agreement. You got to come in and do these classes and you got to take these urine tests. And you got to stay clean. The challenge is, oh, man, you're not being black. You know, you acting like them. Kept you out of prison so I can educate you to teach you how to fish to go on and make a better life. Do you think that there's a, a perspective out there where they just don't think that these types of opportunities are available to them? Or do you think that the addiction, the situation in these types of communities that many of us come from is stronger than the average person realizes? Addiction, all this stuff comes from low self-esteem. It's how you see yourself when you look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, who do you see, Mr. Tucker? I see a, a man that went and started a podcast that want to help people and spread the word about the ills of our community being an Afro-American man. When I look at the mirror, I see a, a child who started off in the project, saw his mother and father get educated, and saw them go on to be bigger and better things and said, this is the blueprint I'm going to follow because I know education works. I know it won't fail because we was in the projects and my mother went to school and became a nurse. Two, three years later, we in this big house. We get an allowance every week. And I'm saying, Mama, how you can afford this? But she's just giving her ATM card and say, go take all the money out. And she trusts me to pay the bills. So that's teaching your child first. Hey, I'm like, God, hey, Mama, you, you got all this bread. <laughs> you making this? Being a nurse? Okay, well, Mama, I want to be better than you. I want to be something better than you. I think you just hit the nail on the head, man. You know, responsibility. You know, if you, if you give a child responsibility and hold them accountable for it, it's a different thing. Now, in a similar situation, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I remember my mother giving me the money to take care of bills. And it was really because at the time, the bus fare for a 10-year-old child was cheaper than the bus fare for the adult. And so yes, she, sent me, she sent me, you know, throughout the South Side to handle the bills. And, and it was a situation where, wow, I, I'm no longer going to ask for, you know, this toy, that candy or this stuff, because I understand how much money we're dealing with as a family unit. And I know what we have to take care of. Right. And, and it's, that was always a powerful lesson for me. And, and at that point, we never had a conversation or a debate about, hey, I don't, I'm not getting enough. You know, we, hey, we're spreading it all out. This is what we need to take care of, man. So I'm glad to hear you talk about 
responsibility because I think a lot of that does fall back on us. There's a lot of things that are happening in our, in our community to us. There are a lot of opportunities that uh, are deliberately withheld from us, but at the same time, you got to be responsible enough to manage your business, the business that you do have. I wanted to hear your perspective on, as a political activist, how do you address these situations, the lack of opportunities, and I guess the current situation with respect to African-Americans? You know, we've got unemployment rates, we have caps on education levels in the community that, that can lead to prolific careers, right? So how do you begin to address that? And what was your political journey like getting started in the field? I'm about to step on some toes now. I'm going to make some people mad. First, when I became a political activist, you can march, you can go to jail, you can do all of that. But until you have a politician who's an Afro-American man that understands your needs and why he's in office trying to help the Afro-American people, you don't have anything. If the preachers that we go to church with every Sunday and take salaries and pay these people houses and they rent, don't stand up for us, but Afro-American churches take in from 12 to $15 billion a year why we don't own anything? Why we don't own 1% of nothing in this country? But yet, we spend $95 billion a year, and everyone else gets rich off Afro-American people. So to all the hoopers and hollers, pastors in the church, stop hooping and hollering, come together collectively, get your people to go vote, stop playing the politics, be a pastor and say, look, we need somebody in office who's going to help us. So let's vote for this guy or this person. Stop having your political beefs in the pulpit because I've seen it done because I was a politician and I went to the church and the pastor said, well, this is who I'm supporting. He put his hand right on the man's shoulder that I was going again. And we get something called a voting letter that tells you who votes for you and I didn't get a vote for nobody in this church. I got a member letter. Nobody in the church voted for me. So what we need to do is stop all the ignorance and the pettiness in the black community. Stop hanging me because I went to school and became somebody when you can have the same opportunity. See, I grew up in the province. I didn't like going to the store with food stamps and kids making fun of me. That was my fuel. That motivated me. I said, man, I'm going to do anything. Because being poor is not a good thing. I understand why young black men join gangs. Mother's on drugs, mother's not at home, a mother's working two, three jobs, and you seeing your mama struggle, and the lights still get turned off. So you say, hey, I'm going to sell drugs. I'm going to do this. I understand because I fell into that pattern for a little bit, hanging out with the gangs and socializing. But it took my father and my mother to talk to him and say, hey, look, you can be better than that. You don't have to go this way, or we're going to whoop your ass. <laughs> and And that was just... The, the talk we had, and the fact that I knew at 18, my parents were putting me out of my house because they did it to my two older brothers, so I knew playing around wasn't going to get me there. And my father, um, I was 13, he sat me down, and we was at a park, and he said, you see this park? He said, 20, 30 years, it won't be there. He said, son, everything changed. You won't be 13, 20, 30 years from now. You'll be a grown man, so you need to do the things in life that a man does, take care of your kids, find your wife, get your house, become self-sufficient. And my parents, they didn't say bad things or say white people, nothing. they just say, hey, if you become self-sufficient, you can do this. If you become your own boss, you can do this. My daddy fixed cars, had a trucking company, my mama nurse, and did her thing. So when you see it, all the negativity I grew up around in the projects, and I saw this hope of light through my parents, then you believe it. And I say, hey, you know what? I can do anything I want to do. Because the son becomes better than the father when the father has led the son. And the son says, hey, you know what, Dad? You did this and did this, but I'm going to go ahead and do this. You know, it, it's all about examples, right? And, and yes, I, I really believe that the majority of us pattern our activity after the examples that we have. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bad examples, right? You see a lot of great people doing great things. But when you look at some of these concentrated areas where there's a lack of hope, 
and a lack of opportunity, there are certain results that come from those circumstances. And society has made their money off us being failures. Going to jail is a part of the failure system. I don't have any education. I don't know how to read and write, so I'm going to go steal. I'm going to go kill. I'm going to be a thug. I'm going to be a gangster. I'm going to sell drugs. And I think it's solely planted in the Afro-American community. They do movies, New Jack City. They do stuff. And people say, hey, man, we can go out. We can be like this. It's cool. We can go do this. We can sell all these kilos of dope. But all my friends that try to sell all these drugs, they in jail. They got out. They couldn't get a job. They couldn't join the military. You know, once you sell any type of drugs, marijuana, cocaine, you cannot even get Pell Grants to go to college. So now you're stuck. So what is your life outcome? Cutting grass, working at chicken plants, doing all jobs until you figure out how I'm going to get from A to Z. Some people just get caught in that rut and say, you know what? This is, this is the best it's going to get for me. I guess the question that I ask is, for those people in that situation, is there a way out? There is a way out. You have to do the right steps. You have to get your rights reinstated. You have to believe in yourself. And you got to say, you know what? I can't do this, but let me do this. Let me go get a certification or something, electrician. Something that's not going to cost me a lot of money. Then I could make a lot of money to prepare myself. But we don't know about these things. They're not pushed upon us in school. When I graduated high school, I didn't graduate with honors. Um, me and my friends, we graduated. We just barely probably graduated, you know. We got a diploma, yay. But it's five of us that graduated. We're all doctors. And the other one, she's a doctor and lawyer like myself, that we go back and say, man, you know, our valedictorian walked and they gave this big speech. And I was like, yeah, you know, he was on drugs. He came to my clinic. These are the things in life. So I tell kids when they're in high school, don't worry about this setup, this show, and they, and they make somebody else my age make a speech about hope and tomorrow. You'll be the best when you graduate because winning at life is the big game. High school, that's a game. That, that ain't nothing. Nobody that I graduated high school with has outdone me, and I was less likely to succeed. The game banger, he's not going to be nothing. The baby daddy maker. None of them hold a flame to me. I remember at my 10-year high school year reunion, 2003, I was 28. I just became a captain in the Army. Nobody wanted to talk to him. Look at him. Look at what he done. I saw you on TV. Your unit was over there in Iraq. You saved some soldiers. Yeah, that's me, Captain America, for real. Because, you know, that story is not as popular to talk about, right? And, and no. I, I think a lot no. of us have been conditioned to consume all this negative content and process it, that it's almost an addiction in and of itself. And, and, and you know, that's why I said at, at the beginning of the segment, this positive concept of activism, giving back and just Mr. contributing Chairman. to society, that's what we need to recognize and amplify. You would never talk bad about anybody. If you came to me and you work at a chicken plant and you say, hey, Dr. McCash, I went and got a certification. Now I'm laying cement. That's improvement. I'm going to motivate you to say, okay, instead of laying cement, let's work on becoming a brick mason. Let's become the builder. Let's see what else we can add to those credentials to make you a better, well-rounded person. Everybody's not going to go get a PhD. The only reason I did it is because I got tired of struggling. The struggle is real. I'm part of a system. I have 14 kids by 11 women. I can say it. So my kids meant more to me than anything. So I got to provide for them because they didn't have to be here. And I'm a father that believes that all costs, they got to get taken care of. A lot of people in, 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 in a situation, even with one child, it's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, male and female, fathers and the mothers, right? Uh, many of us were raised by someone that had to deal with that same situation that probably didn't have the opportunities that some of us can have today 
how did you start your political journey? Currently, you're serving on the Planning Commission, right? Yes, sir. How, how did you get to that point? I, I just got fed up. I, w I was being a political activist. I was out here spending day and night talking so I was blue in the face to these people. And then one day it just hits you like, you know what? To affect change, you got to be in a seat. You have to be on the city council. You got to be on the planning advisory commission. I have got to get a seat. So 2014, I ran for city council, District 7, and I lost about 277 votes. The thing that hurt me wasn't losing. District 7 in Columbus, Georgia, is made of about 46,000 people. And we only have 4,500 registered Afro-American voters. But there are 33,000 people in the district. 33,000. So the things that were said to me were, man, you're going to done a lot in your life, you know, why you in this small time trying to help? It was a real, a lot of negativity coming from the Afro-American community because me and my team, we went out, we knocked on doors. My campaign slogan was, I'm for jobs, education, and healthcare. So I would ask the people to donate a dollar to my campaign, my people, and they wouldn't do it. So I said, I'm going to support my own campaign, went to the campaign finance committee, put $70,000 in my account and ran my own campaign. And black people said, wow, you got that type of money. You don't need to be no politician. But I asked you for a dollar and you won't contribute to my campaign. I want a dollar. I got the vote on this. I got where everybody was at. And I, I told my wife and kids, we're going to knock on all these folks' doors and ask them for a dollar. One dollar. I probably got about $1,000. And you can Google this. You can Google the debate between Dr. Xavier McCaskey and Mimi Woodson. And she said that I didn't know what I was talking about, that they weren't going to get rid of any other projects. Well, when I lost and she got reelected, she said, well, the projects are a thing of the past, and we need to do affordable housing. So you took people that have been living rent-free and say, now you got to get a job because a one-bedroom in a project, we building these new projects, is going to be four seventy-five a month. A two-bedroom, six fifty. A three-bedroom, seven fifty. And in Columbus, Georgia, it's been six years since I ran that race. What I did because I had an independent contract with the school board, and they called them living with other people homelessness. So we went from maybe three, four thousand people being homeless now to almost 38,000 is about 300,000 people. And the homeless mean they don't have their own place. They're not on the street, but they're living with other relatives. And sometimes you got two, three families in one house because there's only like two, three projects left here. The biggest project was BTW and they got rid of it. They didn't give them people no warning. They gave them a $7,500 voucher and put them out. So in 2018, it came four years, and this time I had the people's support. But I drew back on something that my dad told me. He said, sometimes you got to let people suffer. Because now people came to me. They were like, man, we got this money. We're going to put it in his account. We want you to do it. And I said, I tried to do that, and y'all slighted me. You didn't listen. So I'm not going to do it. Somebody else ran against her, and she beat because she has the white vote and the Latino vote in this city. And it's just, it's, it's hard to beat her. They came to me this last year and said, hey, we want you to run against her. I said, I'm going in a new direction. Um, the Planning Advisory Commission had a, a seat open. No one went against me. I got in there and I'm doing little things because I need to step back. So let me do these little things to help you out. But I want to show you the error of your ways. I want to show you where somebody whose heart is in it for you. Because one of the key things they asked me was, if you're elected, what do you feel about your salary? I said, I would take my salary and donate it to something else because I'm in private practice and I don't need the salary on being on city council. 
I don't need it. So I could take this money and have an employment center or something else I was going to do. And I said I was going to not take the salary. So people don't like you when you're honest. You know, a lot of people told me you shouldn't have did that. You was being a show off. But what I was doing was being honest, telling people, I don't, I don't need this. I have a successful private practice. I'm in Columbus, Georgia, and Atlanta, Georgia. Let me help build you up. In, in this city, you're talking about 300,000 people, and you're talking about 30 40% of the black people don't have jobs because the factories are gone, the meals are gone. You, I see more people now working at Burger King and children's jobs that the kids can't get no job because the companies are hiring the grown people. Do you think that community is listening to you now? Do you think they see the problem? They see it, but I'm not running. I'm not running. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. And when it comes for me to go to that next level, it's time to show y'all that my heart was genuine. See, when you're an Afro-American person and you come from where somebody else come from, it's hard because people be like, how you got here? They tell me, well, what did you do? And I tell them, I use every opportunity that was given to me. Went in the military, hey, did this. It was a special program. Um, the guy said, we 8,000 officers short, raised my hand and went. You take every chance that is given to you. My education paid for the military. You get free dental medical for the rest of your life. And I tell these young Afro-American men, if you're coming from an impoverished situation, use the military as your background, as your leaping, your leap board to something better. You will get a VA loan and you can start a business and they'll give you time to pay it back. You can do so much if you stop the negativity, stop listening to people who haven't done or try to achieve anything that you've done and keep moving forward. You got to look at the circles that people are afraid to leave, you know, and, and to quote Les Brown, you know, if you're the smartest person in your circle, you need a new circle. Right. So, That's right. and that, and that speaks to those examples that we're talking about, right? You got to have That's somebody right. that shows you, <clears throat> Hey, you know, this is a way of living. Like you had your dad, right? You had your That's mom. Right. And, what I'm struggling to, to understand is how do we make these types of examples visible in our community? To me, it's, it's a Rodney King situation all over yes, again. It's a, it's an Emmett Till situation all over yes, again. It's a Dr. King situation all over yes, again. It's a Malcolm X situation Come all on. over again. It's a Cain and Abel system all over again. Because Come here's on. the thing. This is what I believe. Even if we all had the same skin tone, you still have the same type of hate going on. And I don't know how you get to the point where this is my brother and I'm his keeper. First off, when I told him I was renouncing my salary, it was genuine. But let me address the issue of why we're not my brother keeper. Because we have a crab in the barrel syndrome. We have a system that has been put in place from the Willie Lynch letter to the slavery of the light-skinned kids being servants and the dark-skinned kids and people out there working in the field. This mentality has been passed on so much that it just becomes natural. Because to me, there was nothing I did in my life that no one else could do. I tell people this all the time. I'm the laziest person you know. But I learned to be great by watching other people. And I'm going to take this for my debate. This lady said, well, you know, she was fussing at me and she was for the other side. So they plant people in the audience to say something to you. So I asked her, I said, man, how long have you been staying in the project? She said, 25 years. I said, ma'am, you could have took one class every three months of 25 years and been a doctor. Next question. Let me just think about that for a second. <laughs> You don't really have to be good in math to know that is something that could have changed not only that 
the outcome for that individual, but for any children that were in that household and the examples that they had to see, right? Let me tell you, when I became an officer, I came home in my officer uniform. I went to all the projects here and used to talk to people, kids. And something that hurt my feelings was this little boy asked his dad, and I remember this, and I can't say the name. He said, Dad, but you went to school with him. Y'all grew up in the same project. Why Why he's doing this and he's like this? And, oh, boy, shut the hell up. Don't nobody care about being in no white man military. That nigga a sellout. Don't talk to that nigga. And that's what he told his son. Okay, so you're going to say no to this benefit, no to that benefit, no to free health care for your child, no to this. And, 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 and don't get me wrong. I was living in a neighborhood where there were not many fathers present, but many of them that were present served in Vietnam and they came back um, not exactly totally healthy um, from a mental wellness standpoint. Let me tell you something. So they had a program called the Second Chance of Life. I used to be game banger, got in some trouble, but when my first daughter mother came to me and she said, I'm pregnant. Something changed inside of me that day. And then we went to the hospital, found out we were having a little girl. And I always tell my daughter this, you saved my life. If anything, the day I'm dead laying in this casket, I want you to know that your birth changed my life, you being born. So I went, turned myself in, get arrested, these, all the things I've done. And the judge said, okay, me and my four co-conspirators, five of us, he said, I'm going to give you a chance. Five years in prison or five years in the military. Well, those four dummies chose to go to prison because they ain't selling out. They ain't going in the military. I told the judge, I ain't going to jail. He said, well, you got 30 days to go get with this recruiter, come back, let me see the paperwork. And I did. Well, those four guys went to prison. Two ended up getting killed. One thinks he's a woman. Other one got out. He's a lifelong criminal, and he has life without the possibility of parole. That's the seriousness of the choices we make. And I went in the military and excelled because when I got in the military, um, my recruiter was George Leon Hutley, Chief Pedal. So I want to thank the man so much that he worked diligently with getting all my charges and stuff thrown out and said, "Hey, y'all, we can save this one." And I met another petty officer, Larry Lamont Payton from Virginia, who was my instructor that taught me about Afro-American and owing it to your people, or picking the ones up who can't do anything, helping them, that this is your plight for life. And by me helping you, one day you got to turn around and help your people. All the people that helped me get to where I'm at, I feel I owe it to them and I'm paying them homage by doing the things that I'm doing. And I will never forget them brothers because it's my duty to help my people, whether you like me, whether you don't like me, whether you say I'm a show off or whether you say you're a sellout. I can be all those things to you, but at the end of the day, I'm fighting for you because I'm trying to be your voice. Because I tell people all the time, Big Zay can't call the judge and say, hey, your honor, let me talk to you about such and such. They're going to send a police officer to my house and lock me up, but Dr. Xavier Marquez McCaskey can go to the courthouse and say, your honor, let me talk to you about this young man you're locking up. Let me tell you that he's been through my program, and I think I can really help him. See, that's the difference. That's a second chance that even the person affected doesn't necessarily see coming, right? Um, and yes, I sir. think a lot of us have had somebody speaking on our behalf in conversations that we weren't part of <laughs> that, that, that helped us get to another point and keep us out of situations, man. I. Like I said, I can't speak for everybody, but but I, I know <laughs> there's some dark corners that I could have been in had it not been for certain My situations. Well, I, I've been there. Yeah. So I commend you, man, for the work that you're doing in the community, man. And I think you have a, a unique benefit of having been in some of these situations and circumstances that you can right. relate to the people that you're speaking to, whether they hear your voice or not. And... I really hope you continue to work with them. What's next for you? Um, 
I'm going to take the bar next year. I'm starting an innocent project. The it's going to be called Itty. I didn't do it because um, more than 6,000 people a year get locked up for false witness, for lack of ID. Mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. And my nonprofit company started with one of our other frat brothers, Tariq Johnson from Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, Tariq, I put you out there. We're going to look at cases, and I have other lawyers who are going to work with me to feel the same way I do, and we're going to do appeals for people on mistaken identity for a little no-cost money to file the fees and come to court and represent you. We're in the process of getting the website up now, telephone numbers. I'm going to have the brothers where they can send me everything electronically, their name and their case, and I can look the stuff up and say, okay, because our witness testimony is just as fabricated as teeth bite marks. If it ain't DNA, it is none to be proven. Somebody coming as oh, I saw him. You seven, eight years old, and you tell him you saw 1,200 feet. I don't believe it. Four o'clock in the morning, drive by. Oh, I saw who it was. How? I don't believe it. And that's referred to as an eyewitness account, right? The eyewitness account is as faulty as Sheriff locking you up, telling you, well, we don't know how he got beat up when he got here, but he admitted to doing it. Our okay. witness testimony is the second leading cause of people getting locked up or people even going to the death penalty. And let me say this. I want you to look this up. My cousin was sent to the electric chair in 1986, June 24th. His name was Jerome Bowden. And I made this in my heart to go to law school because the people in this city who did this to my cousin are going to pay. They're going to answer. And I'm going to be that thorn in their side till I die. He was mentally retarded. And the only thing they had about this woman who got killed and her mother, they had no forced entries. They had no weapons. They had nothing. But him and two of my other cousins who were Afro-American, one of my cousins, Bought, bought the TV for some white guy for $10. They could never find him. They charged him. And he was a mentally retarded man, and y'all put him away with an all-white jury in 1986 in Columbus, Georgia, and he got the death penalty. So it doesn't sound like it was a jury of his peers. Not a jury. But can I tell you this? I'm going to tell you about guilt, because the same judge that set me free was the same one that set my cousin to the death penalty, and one day I saw him, he said, you remind me so much of Jerome Biden. I looked at him, and I said, that's my cousin. And he never spoke to me ever again, and that's on my daddy life. See, I think that's the power of the vote, because when you put somebody on a bench that determines what flow <laughs> and how your child is processed in certain situations, fairly or unfairly. That's what I'm telling people. All this processing and getting mad, that's good. But until you get people in place that are going to write laws to protect, let me, let me tell you first off, as an Afro-American man, you're an educated Afro-American man, when you have to write a law called the civil right law, they don't care about you. They're doing stuff to show that they're good people. When you have to write laws to say, hey, no more lynching black people, you know, it's, 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 it's against the law. But until we stop taking until we start fighting back until we stop being cowards of oppression and the systematic racism they will continue to kill us but if you fight back if you fight back and guess what in every revolution some people are gonna have to die some people are gonna have to go to jail but it stops see if a bully came and beat you up every day you take it but the day you fight him back he'll leave you alone it's been proven. So they're bullying us with their system, this racist system that they do, because they know these cops are predators. They know what they're doing. It was proven. O.J. Simpson with Mark Furman. We are looked at less than animals, than cattle, that our lives mean nothing. You know, they beat Rodney King. What they say, oh, he's black. He, he's strong as the Hulk. We had to do that. Y'all had to beat him like that. 
let, let me tell you something. And this going back to the O.J. Simpson case. 47-year-old O.J. Simpson beat up, hurt, knee operation three weeks before the murders. Okay, look up Ron Goldman. Look at his background. Look at his karate training and being a national karate champion. He was 25 and O.J. was 47. He was 6'5", 260, O.J. 6'5", 245. I'm putting my money on Ron Goldman in that fight. What you have is, again, systematic racism. O.J. Simpson won. Why they never went to court and found out who killed him? Why they never found out? But you take O.J. trophies, you take $35 million from them and give them to their family. It's breaking the Afro-American man. I want to fax the DA of L.A. now and say, hey, look, Nicole Brown's sister case open. Y'all got any leads? No, they ain't got no leads because the LAPD probably did. You know, there, there's so many thought sessions we can have. We, we can't address them all. But one thing we can do is plead to everyone listening to this podcast. If you see something, say something. And if oh, you say yet. something, do something. Because that's what that's it's right. going to take. I know a lot of people going to be mad. Guess what? Marching, they ain't going to do nothing. Because if you don't go to, to the polls and vote these people out November 3rd, the same thing going to happen. And then it might be your child, it might be you, that we out here talking about Black Lives Matter, whatever your name is on the side, putting your posters on the mirror. That's nothing. This man's daughter has to grow up without a father. People are growing up without their kids because they're being killed and slaughtered for what? Because we, we're not speaking up. And I'm going to tell you, I'm tired of the preachers. Oh, let's pray and wait. That ain't doing nothing for our people. Not tell your pastor, I said, stop being a coward and do God's will. Because in every situation in the Bible where people were oppressed, God sent the messenger, they rose up and they fought. If your pastor disagree with me, y'all need to give him out your pool pick because he ain't no preacher. You don't sit there and let people be oppressed because of cowardly action. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. That's one thing I believe. And any God I serve wants people to come up here and to say, look, stop doing this by any means necessary. And, and what I'm saying is by any means necessary, if we got to go get AK-47 and knock on the police door and tell them, come out, let's fight, and we lose our lives. But a message has to be sent more than marching, kneeling, and praying, and kumbaya, and let's hold hands. Because I'm going to tell you something, that we can end this thing. The number one way you get people to be in line is you take their leader and you kill them. And when they assassinated Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, all the other leaders got quiet. They was political, but they knew what lines not to cross because they were scared to die. Oh, well, hope down with dope. No, we should have been saying getting Nancy Reagan, all these people out of jail because they're locking up Afro-American men. You know what? One thing that makes me mad is that marijuana is making so many people rich. And I think about partners of people I had that got 15, 20 years in prison who criminal records are messed up and they can't get adequate work. But you're telling me now, 2020, that marijuana is profitable, that you can go invest in it. And you have people that got life sentences and they're still in jail. You need to write your Department of Justice. You need to be telling these folks, these folks need to go free. This is the kind of activist I am. You can Google me. You can call me. We can talk. But I don't really like talk. I'm not about talking. I'm an action man. You can put a period after that. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I, I have a different perspective, man. I, like I said, growing up in Chicago, we had field trips where we would go and listen to Jesse Jackson with the Operation Push Coalition and, and things like that. I had teachers, many of which were Caucasian, and we watched the civil rights the mistreatment and all of that. And I see tears flowing from their eyes. And, it, it, you know, it's a regional thing to me. Um, and I had went to Chicago, start my school, my schooling in high school, but I finished in Mississippi. And when I tell you, it wasn't like night and day. It was like Earth and Mars. It, 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 was, it was a totally different atmosphere. And the things that I saw, the things that I heard, and the fear that I saw in some of the people that are around me in different circles, let me just say that, fear to act and fear to respond. 
it wasn't something that I was accustomed to. And I think fear is a powerful thing, just like you alluded to. And and the, the thing about fear, though, I, it, there's a lot of fake news to it. You know, once you just step out and realize, hey, you know what? <laughs> you either going to be afraid your whole life or you're going to fight and, right. and just start ending this crap. And, and, and I think that's what people need to see more of. Well, you, you work the military base. Let me tell you a story. 1995, I had to go to an A school in Meridian, Mississippi. And the Afro-American people in that community didn't look at white people. And it was something that I just couldn't believe. And those people would say, boy, or call us soldier boys. And I look at them and they'd be like, man, you, you got to be careful around here. And I'm in Meridian, Mississippi, like, bro, student, like, bro, they don't know me because I ain't scared to die. And if you come to lynch me, you better bring some fine brothers because I got something for you. And um, it was still in place that when we left the base to go in packs, don't be out by yourself. We just talking about 25 years ago. And I said to myself, how could people live like that? Fear. I, I get it now. I've had people of other races slap me on the back. Boy, you're a big old boy. You play football. No, sorry, then I'm not a boy. I was a captain in the United States Army. My name is Dr. Xavier Marquez McCaskey. How may I help you, sir? I'm going to get my respect. You're going to respect me. You're not going to call me no boy. You ain't going to do nothing there. In the words of Michael Evans from Cabrini Green Projects, boy is a white racist word. To my sisters out there, my Afro-American sisters, we cannot build a better Afro-American race till we build up our sisters. But we need you to get negative men. I need you to get counseling if you've been raped, molested, if you got an alcohol problem. Sisters, I need y'all to get off these drugs. Teach. They say a woman can't teach a boy to be a man. That's a lie. Tell your sons that you love them. Tell your daughters that you love them. If the man you got want to beat you and don't love you, suffer in silence. Be by yourself. Put them out. Love your kids. I need the strong women like Miss Celia to come back because we can't build a better Afro-American race till we get y'all together. Dr. Xavier McCaskey, Columbus, Georgia, psychologist, activist, politician making a difference. Thank you for joining us on Thought Session. Yes, sir. Thank you, my brother. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Thought, thought, session. session. Thought.